BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome to the science of success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the science of success the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than 4 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode, we discuss how our traditional education system has given us the wrong perspective on how learning actually works. It's so easy to fall into the trap of looking for and waiting for the perfect step-by-step formula to achieve your goals, but it's actually the ability to flexibly adapt and experiment that empowers you to be successful in learning and really everything in life. We share exactly how you can apply these lessons and much more with our guest, Scott Young. Are you a fan of the show and have you been enjoying the content that we put together for you? If you have, I would love it if you signed up for our email list. We have some amazing content on there along with a really great free course that we put a ton of time into called How to Create Time for What Matters Most in Your Life. If that sounds exciting and interesting and you want a bunch of other free goodies and giveaways along with that, just go to successpodcast.com. You can sign up right on the homepage. That's successpodcast.com. Or if you're on your phone right now, All you have to do is text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. In our previous episode, we discussed powerful thinking tools and strategies you can use to break through tough problems and give yourself confidence and clarity when you're dealing with uncertain situations. We shared the breakthrough strategy that was used to invent astrophysics, explored how you can make tough life and career choices, and showed you how you can use quick experiments to test, learn, and get results rapidly. We discussed all of that and much more with our previous guest, David Epstein. If you want to master one of the most valuable skill sets in today's world, listen to our previous episode. Now for our interview with Scott. Today, we have another exciting guest on the show, Scott Young. 
Scott is a writer and programmer who has undertaken many incredibly challenging self-education projects in his career. These challenges include feats such as an attempt to learn MIT's four-year computer science curriculum in 12 months, as well as learning four languages in a year. He's the author of the best-selling book, Ultra Learning, Master Hard Skills, Outsmart the Competition, and Accelerate Your Career. And his work has been featured in the New York Times, Business Insider, the TEDx Stage, and much more. Scott, welcome to the Science of Success. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, we're really excited to have you on the show today and dig into some of the different topics that you talk about. It's such a great topic in general, and I'm obviously obsessed with learning, which is part of the reason that I do this show. But I wanted to start out and begin the conversation with this challenge or this incredible feat of attempting to learn MIT's computer science curriculum in such a compressed time frame. Tell me a little bit about that. What inspired it? And what tactics or strategies did you implement? Right. So that was a project I called the MIT Challenge, which I started in October of 2011, and I ended in September of 2012. And the idea of the project was that MIT puts a lot of their classes, meaning recordings of the actual lectures, assignments, the final exams with the solution keys, they put those materials for many, many of their classes online for free. So you can right now listening to this, go and take an MIT class like an MIT student. And so I had graduated from school and I had studied business. And I originally had kind of gone in with this notion that studying business would be really good if I want to be an entrepreneur. And then I took a couple of years and realized that it's mostly about how you can be a middle manager in a large company. And so it was a little bit uh, kind of disappointing. And I was thinking about going back to school, but, you know, I just I didn't really feel like I wanted to put in another four years. And so I stumbled across these classes and as I was kind of taking, I think I remember taking one of the classes and being pretty impressed by it and thinking, you know, has anyone ever tried to do something like a degree before, like piece together what an MIT student would do in a computer science or, or some other major degree and try to go through it. And so as I was sort of thinking about this, I also started thinking, well, what if you simplified it? So instead of trying to meet every single little criteria and check every single little box an MIT student would, what if you just simplified it to, what if you could try to pass the final exams for the classes and do the programming projects? And so this sort of spun off into this project that I wanted to do that I did over this year long period of time, I called the MIT challenge. And so with this sort of reduced criteria in mind, the goal was to do the, I think I did one class before the year long period. So it was actually 32 classes in that one year long period of time. So it was a pretty intense project. And some of the stuff that I, I learned from doing this is that many of our expectations that we have about how you can learn things and what the most efficient way to learn things, or even just that you know, the way that people teach you things in school is necessarily the best and most effective way to learn it had sort of had an opportunity to start getting flipped upside down. And so even just little things like if you're watching lectures in a classroom, you have to just sit through the whole class. You have to show up when the class starts. You have to leave when it ends. You have to walk between different lecture halls. If it's a video and you have all of them recorded, you can just watch them at one and a half times the speed. And if you don't understand something, you just pause and rewind. And so little things like this start to add up and then you can approach learning in this new way. So this idea of ultra learning, which I wrote about in this book was to not just take my stories, but people who have also done really incredible things. People like Benny Lewis, who speaks 10 plus languages, or Eric Brown, who started a million dollar game business, or Tristan Montebello, who became a world finalist in public speaking. 
after just seven months of intensive training. And so looking at some of these extreme examples to see if there aren't any principles for learning that can apply to the kind of ordinary things of learning or self-improvement that you'd like to do. There's so many different ways I'd love to explore that. Let's start out with this notion that you touched on a second ago about how our expectations around learning can often be wrong. Yeah, yeah. So I think the best example of this is language learning. So we all have the experience of, you know, taking high school Spanish classes or that one French class we took and we don't remember anything from that or we we can't speak the language. Maybe we know how to say hola or donde esta el baño, but we don't really know that much to be able to actually have conversations with people. And so really the starting point for me of this, so even before I did this MIT challenge project that I decided, the first real exposure that I had that thinking outside of the normal box that we put all of our learning in, which is school and taking classes and getting grades, that there was people out there who were doing really incredible things with learning was actually when I was still doing my undergrad in university, I had the opportunity to go on exchange, I, I went and lived in France for a year. And I thought, you know, I really wanted to learn French, I wanted to be able to have this sort of takeaway from this experience of being able to speak another language. And I was struggling at the time, like a lot of people, I think, who even if you do get a chance to live in another place, it doesn't come automatically. Often, you struggle with speaking the language. And in my case, I was surrounded by people who spoke to me in English all the time. My classes were in English. All my friends spoke to me in English. And I felt like it was very difficult to make progress in French. And so my first sort of real introduction to this world of ultra learning was this guy, Benny Lewis, that I met. And Benny Lewis had a very modestly titled website called Fluent in Three Months. And it was about his challenge to try to learn a language to conversational fluency or beyond in a three-month time frame. And obviously, if you're struggling at something, and I mean, how many of us have spent years learning a language in school and are not anywhere close to fluent, I think something like that is pretty ambitious. But what I got to see from meeting him is how he broke a lot of the conventions that we have about how people often learn these things. So instead of spending, you know, months studying vocabulary, memorizing things, trying to practice grammar drills before having your first conversation, he was jumping into speaking with people from nearly the first day. And he was practicing in this sort of immersive way where he's racking up huge amounts of practice in a short period of time and then thus becoming a lot better at the language. And so this was actually, you know, after I did this MIT challenge project, I did a project that was kind of similar to that where I went with a friend and we did similar kind of thing where we went to four different countries over a year to spend three months in each country trying to learn those languages. And so those were Spain to learn Spanish, Brazil to learn Portuguese, China to learn Mandarin and South Korea to learn Korean. And the kind of method or, or sort of technique that we were using for that approach was to not speak English. So when we would land in the country, we wouldn't speak in English to each other or to anyone we'd meet. We would just try to use the language we were learning. And it worked really, really well. We were not only able to successfully learn the languages, but we were able to make friends and socialize and really just live in that country and have that experience in a way that I think I never I was just kind of scraping the surface of when I was in France. And, and a lot of people are when they try to learn a language. I love the example of really immersing yourself in that immersive practice, and it totally makes sense from the perspective of language learning. How do we start to broaden that lesson or apply some of those principles to learning in, in different contexts as well? So 
thinking about immersion for languages, like languages is the classic example of immersion where we think about, oh, obviously you, you learn through immersion and it works really well. But there's lots of other areas where that style of learning does work well. And it's not the kind that's typically taught. So again, going back to even if you're talking about computer programming or learning some sort of professional skill, being in an environment where everyone around you is practicing the skill, you are using it all the time, you're getting feedback on it, you're working on real projects that are the actual kinds of things that matter. This is how you get better at things in real life. So there's in, in a real way you could talk about being immersed in entrepreneurship or immersed in painting or immersed in architecture, or immersed in programming or all sorts of fields by doing it that way. And yet, how do we teach things in the classroom? You sit behind a desk, someone just talks to you and you know, you're mostly just taking notes. Maybe sometimes you'll do a little assignment or a project, but it's always kind of a toy project that has nothing to do with the real world. And you do this for years before you actually get to meaningfully participate in things. And so I think there's a lot of ways that our traditional education system has given us kind of the wrong lessons about how learning ought to work. And as a result, when we go to learn new skills, it's amazing to me how many people will say, oh, well, you know, maybe I could take a class or maybe there's a book for that <laughs> instead of thinking about how do I create the kind of opportunity for myself to actually practice it directly, get feedback and use things like books and classrooms to support that rather than to use the classrooms and books as like an excuse for not actually doing the thing you want to get good at. Such a great example, this whole idea of, of getting more hands-on, of getting more practical experience. I love the phrase you use, toy projects. Instead of spending time on these toy projects, we should be spending our time getting our hands dirty and just trying out things, get experimenting, getting in the flow and seeing what it's really like. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. So I want to come back to this notion that you talked about a second ago, this idea of ultra learning. Tell me more about what is that and how do we start to, you've given us one example already, but how do we more broadly start to approach learning in a new way? So ultra learning, again, it's it's a word that I kind of coined a little bit to fit a situation. Like a lot of words, you see something in the world and there isn't really a good term to describe that right now. And so the thing was, is looking at people like Benny Lewis or, or other people that I've mentioned before, Tristan Montebello, who did the public speaking project, Derek Brown, who did the video game development and many other examples in my book. One of the things that I noticed that it kind of is the commonality between all these people is that they're taking on sort of self-directed learning projects. And so I say self-directed as opposed to self-education because what I want to emphasize is that this is a project where the individual who is learning is the one in charge. They're deciding what they want to learn, how they want to learn it, and what resources they want to use. As opposed to how we typically think about education, which is where a teacher just kind of tells you what to do and you're expected to just follow along. And so this is sort of an inversion of that process where, you know, maybe you'll even go to a class if you decide that's the best resource. But it's always you seeking out what you should be doing rather than just being told what to do or just waiting for the right solution to come. And this was a pattern that was repeated amongst many of the really successful learners I found. And then the second thing that I think really characterized a lot of these people is that they had a focus on efficiency and really going beyond what would sometimes be seen as normal or necessary for being able to do something really well. And I think this is a really important characteristic because we can talk about some of the cognitive science of learning that I kind of uncovered both in looking at these stories and also doing research from the literature. 
And there's many, many situations where doing something that feels a little harder in the beginning and feels maybe a little bit more stressful, maybe even a little bit more frustrating is nonetheless more effective if you're actually talking about acquiring real skills. So, I mean, Benny Lewis is the classic example. He's going and actually having conversations with people, even though they're like reading from a phrase book and they're speaking something back to him and he's stuttering and struggling, even though that's a very minimalist sort of way of doing that, it is a more effective approach than just spending seven or eight months on Duolingo where you're kind of feeling that sense of accomplishment, but you're not actually doing the real thing that matters. And so this is a pattern that repeats quite often. And so ultra learning was sort of my attempt to characterize the people who are very good and very effective at overcoming these difficulties. That's a great example. And the point about learning and really powerful learning needing to be self-directed is something that's really critical. Yeah, absolutely. I think in the world we live in right now, we just cannot take for granted that the teachers or that the employers that we have or the schools that we encounter are going to necessarily give us the skills that we want and that we need. Many of us go to college and get undergraduate degrees and find that it was mostly useless because the person who was teaching us maybe had their own ideas about what we should be learning and they weren't really driven by us. What do you do if you don't know where to start or you're unsure about the direction to take with your learning? Absolutely. And this is a big problem because obviously the the counter argument to doing self-directed learning is shouldn't the teacher know better? Shouldn't the university know what you need to study? After all, they know it. They're the one designing the course and, and you're not. You don't actually know. So how do you know what the right way to learn a certain thing is? And so the first principle of my book, so I divide my book into nine principles of learning. The first principle I talk about is meta learning. So meta learning means learning about learning. And the key here is that before you start any learning activity, you want to spend, doesn't have to be a huge amount of time, just can even be a couple hours on Google, just looking around at things at what is the right way to learn this skill. And so there's a couple lenses for looking at that. One is to look at what resources are out there? So what books exist? What apps exist? What tutorials exist? What sort of programs are there? What are some of the tools that I can use to get better at this? Sometimes getting better is just going to be, well, just go out and do it. So if we're talking about like public speaking, all right, maybe I'll go to Toastmasters and I'll start practicing my public speaking. For other things, you might need a book. I mean, you can't just learn quantum mechanics by trial and error. You probably need a textbook. And so it helps to look at the resources. The other thing that's really important here too, though, is to look at how people who have successfully learned this skill in the past have learned it. And this is something where I think there's a huge gap between how most people approach things and what experts say. And so the perfect example of this is I've done a few podcasts now with people who have language learning podcasts. So people who speak, you know, several languages or more and their whole lives are centered around language learning. And I was joking to them about how, you know, I'm not a huge fan of Duolingo and I'm always real hesitant to say things like this with people who have very strong opinions because occasionally you'll meet, you know, some polyglot that they have a very favorite method that they love. And it was really funny to talk to all these people who none of them like Duolingo but yet it's the most popular language learning app. So in some ways, there's a real disconnect between what people who are good at learning these skills say works and say matters and what has worked for them and what most people kind of gravitate towards, which is often something that feels good and fun, but doesn't work very well. And so I think about this in many, many cases, and a lot of this can simply be fixed by you go on Google and type, what's the best way to learn a language? You spend an hour or two reading articles and you'll already have a good sense of what the challenges are and what methods might be useful for you. That's a great starting point. And that's definitely something that I've personally used 
when I'm trying to learn or master a new skill for, you know, recently I, a couple of years ago, I wanted to learn more about chess and I Googled, you know, the fastest way to learn mm-hmm. chess or 80, 20 yeah. chess principles, all these kinds of different phrases. And I found a couple different strategies that were, you know, if you just study this one thing, you can study 20% of the material and get 80% of the results. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's important to realize that meta learning and doing this kind of preparation, it doesn't obviate the need to do the work. I mean, if you want to have a certain skill, if you want to know certain things, then you do actually have to practice. You have to do it. I think the thing that's important to stress here and what I'm really trying to argue with this ultra learning is not some shortcut so that you can find some way that you don't actually have to do the work to learn something, to know something but rather to prevent you to go down dead ends. Because a lot of learning involves going down dead ends. It involves spending a lot of time on something that turns out to not matter so much. And so if you can laser in on what are going to be not only the things that you need to learn, but also the ways in which you will be able to learn those things the most effective way possible, you will save yourself a lot of time. And it's it's unfortunate that a lot of the traditional approaches that we have for learning things are not often that well optimized because they are for different goals. They're for making the class easy for the teacher to grade or they're for meeting certain academic requirements that may not be the same requirements you have for a hobby or for a job. It's a big theme that we talk about a lot on the show, which is basically this idea that there's no such thing as a get smart quick scheme. (laughs) That is absolutely true. And I would agree with that. And I think if you read my book and you were talking about it, like, again, I'm talking about doing things in short periods of time and often somewhat kind of almost unbelievably so if we're talking about people who have done things in a very short period of time. But I hope that you'll realize as you both read the book and you look at it that some of these really ambitious feats are, again, a result of someone working really hard. So it's not the case that they didn't work hard, but also, of again, really lasering in on exactly what needs to be done. So it's doing the same work that you need to do for learning, but just with less of the waste. I think it's worthwhile to unpack this a little bit more. And you touched on some of the basic strategies for meta learning. But how do you, in a really tactical sense, start to drill down and figure out exactly what are the really high impact effective learning strategies and what the dead ends are? Right. So I think, and again, as I divide into my book into these nine principles are going over specifically a problem that a lot of learners have with many domains. And so the principle is kind of the antidote. So if the way we typically learn has certain flaws, then the principle is an antidote. And one of those principles that I talk about is directness. So I've already been hinting at it throughout this conversation, but the basic idea of directness is simply that if you want to get good at something, you need to do the thing that you want to get good at. If you want to know something, it always helps to ask yourself, where and how will I use this knowledge? before you start learning it so that you can do some practice in an environment that is really similar to where you actually want to use it. And this is actually based on really over a hundred years of psychological studies that show that human beings are bad at something that psychologists call transfer. So transfer is when you learn something in one context, let's say in a classroom, and then you apply it to another context. So let's say real life. And the challenge here is that the way that we kind of often casually think about learning is that we think about learning like it's a muscle. So we think about, okay, well, when I'm doing this brain training game, I'm training my brain to be smarter for other things. Or when I think critically about one problem, I'm improving my reasoning about something else. And just again and again, we show that when people learn things, they tend to be not only quite specific, but also tend to stay kind of stuck almost to the situations and contexts that you learn them in. 
So you learn some formula in your physics textbook, but then in your engineering job in the real world, you completely forget it because it's difficult to transfer that knowledge. And so because there's so many of these studies that demonstrate this difficulty and this challenge, the ultra learners I met often combat it by inverting that principle that if you want to learn a language to have conversations, then you better be having conversations pretty early on, if not right from the beginning, like Benny Lewis does. And if you're waiting six to nine months to do it, then you're going to have a lot of problems. And similarly with programming, that if you want to be able to write computer programs, you need to write computer programs. And yet in many universities, the way that they will teach you and test you on computer programs is to write programs out on pencil and paper, and then they will grade them, which is obviously never how you write a program in real life, other than maybe just a broad sketch of a program. And this is something that also has a lot of drilling down potential. So there's sort of the broad idea about doing it. But as you understand this principle of transfer and this principle of directness, you can start to see how you can make adjustments to your approach to make what you're doing more effective. So I have a really good example that I like because I think it's something very subtle that I think a lot of people would miss when they're learning, and yet it makes a big difference. So starting in about January, I started learning salsa dancing with my wife, and we were going to classes. And we are doing some sort of choreography in the class. So you'll do like a turn and then you spin them and they spin you and you go under your arms or whatever. And it's like about 30 seconds, maybe less of, you know, stepping back and forth. And that's the move. And you learn that. And then you rotate with new dancers and you, you just kind of learn it in the classroom. And then we decided to go to a social where you actually just dance with people. And, you know, there's no teacher telling you what to do right in that instance. And we found it really difficult, even though we were doing so well in the class. And so what was going on there? And one of the major problems is that when you are in the class learning the choreography as a lead, as the you know person who is deciding what choreography you're going to follow, you don't actually have to do those subtle things with your body to communicate where you want your follow to go. You just know that they know what you're both trying to do the same choreography. So you just do it, right? And so this is an example of where transfer fails because you were missing some of the skills that actually are needed in the real world when you were training in the kind of simulation or in the sort of classroom environment. And so this principle of directness, I think it has kind of a very obvious connection of do the skill you want to get good at. But if you really understand it, it's quite deep. And so you can start to analyze little places where your skills might not be lining up with the thing you want to get good at because of differences in how they're actually practiced. It's such an elegantly simple point that I feel I could definitely apply better to many areas of my own life. If you want to get good at something, you actually have to do the thing that you want to get good at. Yes. And that's, I mean, that's, again, the obvious sort of like high level version of it. But don't let the obviousness or the simplicity of that statement fool you. I think there are many, many cases, even for me, having, you know, written the book on this kind of stuff that I make the mistake because... I forgot about transfer or because I thought something was the same as something else and then they were different in a subtle way and I only appreciate that later. So this is something, again, that if you get better and better at it, like many of the ultra learners who I document in the book who are real masters of this, you can make your learning more effective because you are really not wasting the time with learning a bunch of things that don't end up transferring. Well, like so many of the most important things in life, it's simple, but it's not easy. Mm, yes, that is definitely true. Earlier, you touched on the principle of retrieval and started talking about that a little bit. Tell me a little bit more about retrieval. What is it and how do we start to apply that principle of ultra learning? 
So I think you'll appreciate this, but there's a great set of studies done by Jeffrey Karpicki. I think he's at University of Purdue, and they really demonstrate this principle of retrieval really well. So rather than give away what retrieval is, I'd like to just kind of talk a little bit about these studies because I think they're really fascinating. So in one of the studies, he divided students up into multiple groups. One of the groups, he says, well, or whoever was running the experiment, I don't know whether it was actually Professor Karpicki, but... They experimenters get you to do repeated review for a text in order to study for a test. So this is very similar to how a lot of students study for tests where they read something over and then when they're done, they read it over again. And maybe they do some trivial stuff, like maybe they retranscribe their notes or do something like that. But they're basically just looking at it again and again and again in the hopes that they will remember it for the test. Another group, they got to do what they call free recall. So free recall is when you, after you've read the text, you close the book. And then sort of without any prompt, without any questions, you just try to remember as much as you can from what you just read. And after they did this, so they did this little test and they asked the students, how well do you know the information? And the people who did repeated review gave themselves high marks. They said, I really understand this information well. I know it. On the other hand, the people who did free recall gave themselves very low scores. They're like, oh, wow, I didn't remember anything. This was so difficult. However, you give those same students an actual test and it inverts. Those who do free recall perform much better than those who do repeated review. And this is a really robust principle. So it's amazing that if you look at the vast majority of students, how they're actually studying, it's repeated review. They're just looking at the notes again and again and again. And that doesn't work very well if you actually want to be able to remember things later or be able to use them in a real situation. And so another study, which I thought was really funny, because this study was just, they the students were forced to use a particular learning technique. So they were just told to do repeated review or free recall. But in another study, they were given the choice. So students were allowed to choose which technique they wanted to use to study. And what they noticed is that poor performing students, the so students who weren't doing as well, often opted for repeated review because they weren't ready to do recall or retrieval practice. On the other hand, if you force those same students to do retrieval, so through experimental manipulation, you don't allow them to do review. They have to do retrieval practice. They do better on tests. So this is another example of where our intuitions about how we learn and how we ought to process information often lead us astray. And it's amazing how many times this comes up, not even just in taking tests, but in real life. So if you're practicing a speech, how many people read their note cards over and over and over again to memorize a speech? Don't do this. Put the note cards down and try to remember the speech. And only when you can't recall something, look at your note cards. That's the way to memorize the speech. It's not looking at the note cards over and over again. And yet, for many, many skills, this is how we practice it. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. 
Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hiring the right person takes time, time that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire, because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want, and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. It's such a counterintuitive finding, this idea that in many instances, the most difficult and frustrating learning strategies are actually the strategies that produce the most long-term learning. So it actually even goes beyond that. So R.A. Bjork, one of the psychologists that I talk about in this chapter in Retrieval, even has a concept that he calls desirable difficulties, which basically mean that the more difficult it is to retrieve things. So the harder a time you have to remember something, like the less help there are, the less hints there are, the less cues there are. So as an example of this, doing free recall is about as hard as it gets because you don't have any prompts. Whereas if you have to do recall when someone gives you a question, that's a bit easier. If someone gives you a fill in the blank, it's even easier than that. If someone gives you like the first two thirds of the word you're supposed to remember, that's even easier, right? And so what they found is that the more difficult the retrieval is, provided you're successful in remembering it, the more effective it is. So it seems that difficulty and doing things that are frustrating and doing things that are hard may be at a very fundamental level what we need to be doing if we want to learn. And that a lot of the things that we do to make ourselves feel more comfortable and avoid those feelings are actually in the wrong direction when it comes to learning. So if we're applying these principles in our own lives and being self-directed learners who are no longer in school, what is a concrete way to start to implement something like retrieval into our learning practices? So retrieval impacts a lot of things. So I just gave the example of like when you're memorizing a speech that you have to give, that would be the way to do it. And I think the right thing to think about with retrieval is think about anything that you need to remember. So think about things that have to come up without you necessarily being able to look them up. And this is something that's often underrated because in our modern world, it's easy to look things up. But I can give a good example of something where retrieval might come into play. And so just imagine for a second, if you're not a computer programmer, try to just imagine for a second because this is a computer programming problem. But if you were a computer programmer, you were, that's what you do for a living. You might know a certain way to solve a particular problem. So you've learned a way to solve a particular problem. Now, it may not be the best way to solve that problem. It may actually be bad for certain situations. And then let's say you read somewhere about some other way of solving that problem. 
And, you know, you're reading it in some book and you're saying, oh, that's very interesting. You know, I should remember that for next time. But then next time rolls around and you've completely forgotten that way of doing the problem. And you go back to the old ineffective way that you had for doing the problem. And so this is an example where doing some kind of retrieval practice. So maybe even just like immediately after you read the article about it, you try to, you know, can I explain to myself how this technique works? Or you might even, if you want to be more sophisticated, you might even like put it in a notebook somewhere so that you could, you know, quiz yourself a little bit later about, oh, okay, you know, this is this algorithm that I want to remember and I'll put it in a notebook. And I mean, we're talking about computer programming, but obviously this applies to so many of our jobs. And so this is an example where I think retrieval is important because if you know that, okay, I can use this particular solution for this kind of problem, well then, yeah, maybe you don't need to memorize the details. You can just look it up in Google. But if you don't remember that there is a solution to this kind of problem that you're encountering in real life that might work, you're never going to be able to use it. There's, You're not even going to think to look it up in Google. So this is one of the examples of where everyday life, where you're just trying to be good at your job, you're just trying to do your work better, be able to understand things better, be able to do things in your life better, where these principles have, I think, pretty pervasive impacts on how you should think and learn. I want to explore another one of the topics and one of the mm-hmm. core pillars of ultra learning. Tell me a little bit more about experimentation. Yeah, so experimentation is the sort of last kind of principle that I put in the book with these nine principles. And the main thing that I wanted to stress for experimentation was, well, there's two things. So the first thing is simply that a lot of people, they want the step-by-step formula. So they want you to tell them step one this, step two this, step three this. And that can be helpful. I think that can often be helpful in the beginning. But the problem is that a lot of the challenges that we face don't really boil down to step-by-step. If you want to start a successful business, I guarantee you there is no step-by-step formula. Why? Because the people following the step-by-step formula have made those kinds of businesses. There's a lot of competition. It's going to be difficult to succeed. Similarly, if you want to be a successful writer or artist or programmer or architect or podcaster, you name it, there is no formula because as soon as the formula becomes popular, everyone else is doing it and it, it sort of becomes stale a little bit. And so in a lot of ways, what we need to do in our learning efforts and in our lives in general is have this capacity for experimentation, is the capacity to try things out, see what's going to happen, and then see what some results are, and then monitor and make those adjustments. And I think this is particularly true for learning because the second point I wanted to make is that when we are learning things, a lot of what makes someone really successful in these sorts of self-directed learning projects, these ultra-learning projects that I've talked about, isn't so much that they followed this step-by-step formula. They just knew about these three or four tactics and they just applied them and they had a lot of success. Rather, it's from developing a sort of intuition that you have about when things are slowing down, when things are getting stuck, why they're getting stuck. And so you can sort of devise routes and little detours around your obstacles. So many of us, we just have one solution to a particular problem. We just apply it relentlessly. And when it doesn't work, we just apply it some more. And so I think the idea of experimentation is that we need to not only cultivate a lot of tools, we need to learn lots of different ways that we can solve our problems, learning and otherwise. But then also we need to be flexible in recognizing, you know, when is this not working and when do I need to adjust that approach? So learning and I think anything to do with improvement in life involves not only getting better at things and not only applying successful strategies, but also being willing to fail and being willing to make mistakes at times too. Lots of great ideas that I want to explore from that. One of them, you touched on this notion of cultivating 
multiple different tools and strategies. Tell me more about that and how do we do it? Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to do with this book was to show in the particular domain of learning, a lot of different tools people use, not to say that these tools are the panacea. So if you read my book, it's definitely not the case that I'm saying, well, if you just use, let's say, space repetition systems as an example, then all your problems will be solved. Some people really think that they really do like space repetition systems and it for them, it's their favorite tool or for other people, it's mnemonics or for other people, it's using, you know, visual imagery as an explanatory tool or for other people, it's, you know, getting their hands dirty. They don't like theory for other people. They like book learning. They like to explore a lot of theory first. And so my idea here was to not only present a lot of these tools, space repetition systems, mnemonics, et cetera, so that you would have these ideas just in the back of your head that you'd know they exist but then also try to explain what sort of problems do they tend to solve. So when you're experiencing difficulties in something you're learning, you can say to yourself, hmm, didn't Scott talk about some tool that might be helpful for this situation? And so some of them are actual tools, like actual software. So space repetition systems are a good example of that. They are a software you can get. One of the more popular open source ones is is called Anki, A-N-K-I. And it basically is a intelligent flashcard system where you can create flashcards and it will allow you to remember information better because instead of just testing you and then you just have to go through your flashcards again, it perfects kind of the timing. So it tries to predict when you're just about to forget something to give you the card as a reminder, but not reminding yourself incessantly about the things that you already know. So it's a tool for optimizing things. And that's very useful for memory heavy subjects like law or languages or biology or medicine. It can often be very useful for that. But that's just one technique. That's just one tool. And I think the more tools that you have, the more that you're aware of, the more you can approach any problem with a Swiss army knife instead of a hammer. And that's a great analogy and one that actually Charlie Munger, who's one of my all-time intellectual heroes and longtime mm. fans of the show, will know that that we talk about Munger a lot. But this whole notion, I think you made a great point, which is that software tools are important, but really one of the cornerstones of this is to cultivate these mental models, these thinking tools, mm -hmm. these learning tools that you can apply flexibly in a lot of different situations. Well, and that's one of the things that I talk about in the book as well is about meta learning that we talked about kind of the short term benefits of doing that, where you do some you know, burst of research on a project and then already, you know, okay, well, if I want to learn a language, use these three things, don't use these other seven things. Okay, so that's good. But then in the long term, as you do more projects and you, especially if you're doing projects in different areas, you accumulate more of these mental models. You understand how the world works. You understand how learning works. So once you've, you know, let's say mastered memorization in one subject, you know, some of those tools you can apply to another. So I had a conversation with a guy who was learning Mandarin Chinese and he was a doctor. And so he was very self-confident about the ability to memorize stuff. He's like, no, 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 I know exactly how to memorize things because I've spent basically my entire life having to memorize a lot of information in medicine. Now, there are differences in memorizing, you know, vocabulary words as there are with memorizing, you know, patient etiology and, and this kind of stuff. But at the same time, I think you get that benefit. So what I'm also trying to advocate in this book is not really just doing one project or just doing one sort of skill that you're going to improve, but a sort of lifelong philosophy of constantly learning new things so that you always are adding new tools and that those tools kind of, in some ways, it's sort of compounding growth that as you get more tools, you get more ways you can solve problems and you become more effective. Love the reference to compounding your knowledge because it's such an important 
idea and something that I talk about a lot, this notion that if you study and spend your time learning these mental models and these frameworks that either don't change or change very slowly over time, you can really start to compound your understanding of the world in a very meaningful way. And over time, it starts to lead to these massive changes and shifts and improvements in your ability to think and make decisions and understand reality. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I think that is really, you know, one of the things is, so we started this podcast talking about some of the projects that I've done and some of the projects that I mentioned that other people have done. And, you know, sometimes there's a little bit of a quality of like, oh, wouldn't it be great if I could learn a language quickly? Or wouldn't it be nice if I didn't have to spend so long taking classes? And I think in some ways that approach kind of misses the point. Because I think that the greatest moments that we're going to have in our lives are not going to be just because you got some reward or because someone gave you a trophy or because you got some recognition. They're going to be because you experience something that expands your sense of what's possible. And I think learning and particularly the kind of learning that I advocate in this book is really at the cornerstone of that. So if you take on a project and you expand your skills quickly in a direction that you were struggling with before, that opens your mind to, you know, what other things could I do that I was holding myself back for? You know, when I did this trip to learn languages, my feeling wasn't just, oh, great, you know, I can speak more languages now, but that there were so many corners of the world and cultures and people that, you know, I knew they existed, but they were kind of opaque. They were sort of not possible for me to connect with and see. And I think the more subjects you learn, the broader and bigger your world becomes. And so I think there's really something kind of life affirming and expansive about viewing life this way through a series of, you know, learning projects and, and of really striving to do learning well. And that makes me think of something else that I wanted to touch on you said earlier, which is this notion that the important skill set to develop in life as a learner, but really in anything, is this ability to be flexible and to experiment. And it's so easy to fall into the trap of just waiting for the formula or the answer or the thing that you think will give you perfect clarity and confidence to make the tough decisions in your life. But the reality is that that never comes. You just have to get comfortable starting these little experiments and be flexible in adjusting to the things that life throws at you. And I think that you've hit the nail on the head too, that a lot of people are, their kind of baseline emotion is some kind of fear or anxiety that they want the world to be smaller, to be more comprehensible, to follow a list of rules, to have that security. And I think that a lot of times those feelings come out of a sense of inadequacy or incompetence that if the world is bigger, it's scarier. If there's more things to understand, if things don't break down to a formula, then I might fail. I might not be able to do it. And so I don't think that I have an answer for that. I don't have the, again, the formula for getting past formulas. But I think if you invest more in your process of learning itself, you build some of that self-confidence. And as you build more self-confidence, you become more comfortable with things being ambiguous, with there not being a right answer, with trying something when you don't know whether it's going to work. And so I think the more you can take on these kinds of projects and approach things this way, the easier it is to be comfortable. And I think you can turn those feelings of anxiety and fear and you know, worries about what's going to happen in life into feelings of, you know, wonder and curiosity. There's one other topic that I want to touch on really briefly and share. Can you tell me a little bit about the Feynman technique and how to apply it? Yeah, sure. So the Feynman technique was something that I made a video about this technique, probably about in 2011. So a while ago, and it's become somewhat popular since. 
And the idea of the technique was that around the time I was using this, I had just read for the first time Richard Feynman's fantastic autobiography, if you haven't read it, called Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman. And in it, he kind of documents his approach to dealing with difficult problems. So Richard Feynman, for those of you who don't know, is a was a Nobel Prize winning physicist. He kind of was one of the founders of quantum electrodynamics. So you can tell he's a pretty smart guy. But what I really liked about him was that he had this kind of fearlessness and kind of iconoclastic way of thinking about problems. So it wasn't just that he was smart, but also that he had a tenacity for dealing with things that he didn't understand. And he didn't have this sort of difficulty that some of us do that when we don't understand something, we want to push it away. For him, he really wanted to get his hands dirty. And so I kind of came up with this technique that I thought sort of embodied a lot of his philosophy. And, and the basic idea of it is that let's say you're taking something, let's say you're taking a math class, that's sort of the canonical example of where you might not understand something that a lecturer told you. And so you write at the top of the page what it is that you're trying to understand. So you can say like understanding derivatives or understanding trigonometry. And you probably want to reduce it down to the most narrow part of what you don't understand. So if you don't understand let's say the sign rule, then put the sign rule, don't just put trigonometry. And then what you should aim to do is to teach this idea to write out an explanation as if you were teaching it to someone else. So you try to explain the idea as if you were going to go on and give a lecture and these were going to be your lecture notes. And the thing that I found very valuable about doing this is twofold. So one, simply by writing down what you don't understand, you often come to understand it. So sometimes just putting your ideas on the paper can overcome the fact that in our head, there's sort of bunch of different things all going on at the same time and it's hard to keep everything straight. And so just writing things down can help with that. The second thing that it helps with is that when you aren't able to resolve those problems, so you start writing and you don't have an answer to your question, generally you've zoomed in a little bit. So you've gotten a little bit more focused at where the issue you don't understand is. So as you start explaining, you know, derivatives, you start to say to yourself, well, what's going on here? Like, I don't understand this. And then once you don't understand that little piece, then you can go to a textbook, you can go to a teacher, you can go to a colleague, you can go to a peer, and you can ask them. And so sometimes that just goes to re-watching that segment of a lecture video, and sometimes you don't have that. Sometimes you you know type Khan Academy, or you, or you type into Google, how do I do this, or how do you do that, and then an explanation will come up. But this is basically a way of debugging your own understanding, because it reveals what the problem is, and then you've got a bit of a narrower, more reduced scope to try to solve the problem the next time. And if you just keep repeating this process, generally I find you'll get the answers to your problems and you'll understand something that you found was difficult before. It's such a great strategy and reminds me of the quote, which I think is often attributed to Abraham Lincoln, but may not necessarily be his, which is, if you give me an hour to chop down a tree, I'll spend you know 90% of the time sharpening an ax. Mm, yeah. Yeah, well, that's true. And I think so many of us, we want to rush things, right? So how many students, when they see something they don't understand, their instinct is memorize it, right? Well, there's no understanding this, so I have to memorize it. And you know, I've been, I've been writing about learning for a long time on my blog. So I get these emails from students where they'll say things like, well, you don't understand, Scott, that, you know, and I, I know you, you talk about how you should understand things and, and not like just try to memorize them. But in my class, it's different. They only want to memorize things. And so then there's usually a bit of back and forth. And I say, OK, can you give me an example? Like, give me something from your class. And it's almost always that the example they bring up is like, no, 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 you were supposed to understand that. And I think that's something that a lot of us fall into is that that we 
have some difficulty with something and maybe the tool that we have in our toolkit is memorization. And so if you don't get something immediately, then that's what you think to yourself. Well, I just have to memorize it. And so this is one of those situations where, you know, there are situations where maybe getting a super deep understanding is not as important. So if you were having to memorize words in a new language, maybe you don't need to know the detailed etymology of every single word, although it might not hurt for some words. But at the same time, so many of us sort of fall back on the tools that we understand for learning and we don't have a real broad vocabulary that we can use to approach a lot of different problems. And so it's no wonder that we get stuck from time to time. What would one piece of homework be that you would give to somebody listening to this that they could start to concretely implement some of the themes and ideas that we've talked about today? So the one that I usually lean on, and I mean, there's many, we've talked about a lot of different ideas, but the one that I usually put as my sort of most important takeaway would be think about something that you are learning right now or that you're trying to learn. And now I want you to think very clearly about what would be the kinds of situations where you would use that knowledge or apply that skill. So this not obviously applies if you're trying to work on an actual skill. So if right now you want to learn French, it might help to think about, well, when would I actually use French? And this isn't to dissuade you from learning it if you can't think of an immediate answer. Lots of things you can use in the future don't have an obvious use right now. But even if you say to yourself, well, I'd probably use it when I'm traveling. That already gives you a lot of hints about how you might structure a project, which would be very different if the immediate answer that popped in your head was, well, I'd really like to read The Count of Monte Cristo in French or something like that. And similarly, if we're talking about theoretical knowledge, so you're just reading a blog article, listening to a podcast, just reading a business book you found, asking yourself, what kinds of situations would this knowledge come up in is very useful because you start automatically thinking about not only how you could transfer to those situations, but you also start thinking about where you're going to have to do practice if you actually want to get good at it. So many people buy books and then they buy a book and then they realize a couple months later, oh wait, my life didn't change at all. And it's because they didn't actually implement the ideas. It's because the ideas never made contact with their real life. And so of course the ideas stayed really inert. And so if you can start thinking about these things very early on when you're learning, you'll get more efficacy just because you'll avoid this problem of transfer and also because you'll be able to start making little tweaks to what you do going forward so you can apply it more easily. And Scott, where can listeners find you and the book and your work online? So yeah, if, you, if you're interested in it, I'd highly recommend checking out my book, Ultra Learning. You can find links to it on my website at scotthyoung.com. That's S-C-O-T-T-H-Y-O-U-N-G.com. And there I also have over 1,300 articles that I've written over the last 13 years on my blog. So there are quite a few articles there as well for free about learning, about personal development, and really a lot of the stuff that I know you talk about here on this podcast. Well, Scott, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing all this wisdom with our listeners. Such a great conversation and some really insightful techniques and strategies and ideas about how to be better learners. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was great. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created this show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. 
I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or If you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success.